Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius Podcast Series. I've interviewed over 2,000 experts in their fields. Um, My goal here is to find the geniuses in their relative fields and bring them to you, the listener. So today I have uh, Professor Nicholas P. Money. Uh, He's the author of multiple books, a lot of them on um, essentially fungi or fungal biology. Uh, His newest one is called The Selfish Ape, and uh, he's a professor at Miami University, uh, head of what's called the Western Lesson Program. So uh, again, today we're going to focus, even though Nick has an extensive background, we're going to focus more on his most recent book that just came out, uh, The Selfish Ape. So Nick, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. Good to have the opportunity to talk with you. Yeah. The title is uh, reminiscent of uh, Dawkins' uh, The Selfish Gene (laughs) But, uh, you know, that's my assumption. What's what's the premise of your new book? I suppose that, well, the premise of the new book is to counter some of the uh, dominant narratives about Homo sapiens, those that seek to elevate us above the rest of nature. You think about Stephen Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature that was published a few years ago, and many other books that put forward the case that in In various ways, humans have stepped beyond the bounds of natural law uh, to the point clearly where we're we're capable of changing our environment, which is all true. But in my book, I'm interested perhaps more in the damaging effects that we've had upon the environment and the uh, terrible way in which we've conducted ourselves toward other sensitive species. So that's really the point here. It's not a particularly uplifting message, but it's one that if we're if we're brave enough to do this, to look in the in the mirror in the morning and say, "Wow, what an awful thing I'm looking at! What a damaging, terrific, ter- terrifically uh, uh, damaging species uh, I belong to." But what what would be the good? I mean, is it if we look at ourselves as above and the pinnacle of evolution? That's that seems to be the predominant thought. So that's that's guided our actions. So are you saying that by adding in a, a dose of humility that uh, humanity will act better? Is that your, your thought? I, I, I suppose that that is a hope, although um, I'm probably even more nihilistic than that. We, we may get, get to that. But I think if we look at ourselves in a truly objective fashion, biologically, it's clear that claims that we are so different are without basis. And there's there's a good history to this. I mean, Thomas Huxley wrote about this in the 19th century, Darwin's bulldog. And he looked at our anatomy and a little bit, little bit at our physiology and showed ways in which we were quite clearly sculpted on a, an ape body plan and that we belonged to a species of African ape, which of course was seen as outrageous at the time by Huxley's readers. But to some degree, we've never really, really escaped that deification of ourselves. And we see evidence of this in biological research, I think, all the time. I write it right in the book about the Human Genome Project and the way that 
initially it was thought that humans, given our uh, clear evidence of our brilliance, that we would perhaps have tens, hundreds of thousands of protein encoding genes. And it was this process of, of uh, to some humiliation, perhaps, when it was found that we had roughly the same number of protein encoding genes as nematode worms and many other organisms, maybe three times as many genes as the uh, as bakers and brewers yeast, Saccharomyces, which I've spent quite a lot of time uh, writing about. And that that's I think that's that's a really interesting starting point to think about human genetics and realize how much information it takes to encode a human being relative to other organisms. And it's clear that we're more complicated than nematodes, the um, standard experimental model C. elegans, this particular nematode that's used in the lab. It's got about a thousand somatic cells compared with trillions in the human body. But if we look at the complexity of the individual human cell and the individual worm cell, I don't think we see that kind of level of, of the anticipated level of difference. It takes about that number of genes to run the more complicated eukaryotic type of cell. And so it's not a surprise that really, I think we've got the same sort of size functional genome as, as worms and uh, many other kinds of, of animals. And so that's well, the, the starting point here is to just compare us with other organisms and see ways in which we're really not that dissimilar from the rest of nature. And I think we forget that at our peril. Well, in that thread, since you've done a detailed comparison and you've done research and not all of it could have made it into the book, obviously, how do you feel about yourself as a human now? Do you feel more a part of nature or did that not come through to you? Like, Do you, do you feel better about your existence or different? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. I think actually um, I had a somewhat unusual usual upbringing as a, as a child growing up in England. And um, uh, through the relationship that I had with my uh, maternal grandmother, she was a great uh, naturalist, amateur lover of nature, and would take my sister and I out into the woods on every opportunity. And she was very, very influential in showing us, I think, ways in which we were just part of this, this divine comedy. And so that at least hasn't really changed for me over the last uh, numerous decades. I'm 57 now. And so I'm thinking about sort of how have I changed over 50 years. I think I'm more aware now than I have been about my own personal role in destroying the planet and actually coming to to terms with that. And this is a work in progress. But again, to look at myself and, and realize the way in which I'm a full participant in our, what, fossil fuel based economy I behave perhaps rather badly than more badly, worse than some of my neighbors and recognizing that. But I think there is a way of, I'm hoping that there's, there's some path for um, salvation through this in recognizing this. Although I can't say that I've really changed my behavior as a, as an American consumer in re in response to, to the research for this book. It's just that I think I, I recognize maybe I've gained some humility. I recognize now really, what my carbon footprint really is. So for for the average reader, what's your goal for them? You know, they'll read it. They may feel ashamed, you know, more <laughs> humble, but, uh, you yeah. know, I mean, people don't like to feel bad. I know that. And they, they would tend to shy away from those feelings, but what, what's your goal in writing this thing? What do you want people to feel when they read it or do? 
two things, I suppose. There's only really two practical things that come out of this this disquisition. One thing is I think that we need to try and be nicer to the rest of nature. Our record um, in the mistreatment of other very, very sensitive animals is absolutely appalling. I think when the when the aliens come and visit, they'll, they'll be uh, uh, they'll be punishing us for our crimes against the rest of nature. So that's that's one thing thing, and we could talk about that that in more detail. Um, I suppose the other thing is to think about population growth, which is very unpopular. No politicians really address just the number of humans, but in the end, I think that's the most important factor in the way that we're changing the. Uh, chemistry of the atmosphere is just the sheer number of us. And that is something that's missing really from the climate debate. Um, the most important climate change activists, I'm not really going to name names, but it's it seems bizarre to me that they don't mention the fact that we're we're racing toward 8 billion humans and that anything that individuals do is really going to be swamped by this growth in, in uh, population growth. Well, the patterns of population growth are changing. It seems like uh, there are countries that, I guess, are going negative, perhaps, in terms of population, and then other ones that are accelerating you know, very positively. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that is the point. But it's, it's at this point, um, have, we left, have we left it too late? It's still going to take a while before the population stabilizes, and it depends what data you look at. But United Nations show us maybe topping out at about 10 billion human human beings within the next few decades. Um, yeah, we, we might well be seen as, as uh, th- that we're on a better track today. And certainly I hear this from the, um, the students that I work with, the young women that I work with at my university. Far fewer of them today anticipate having, uh, perhaps having children at all, but certainly not having large families. And that wasn't the case even 10 years ago. So I think the, uh, the youth of America and other countries are, are, are certainly getting this message, but um, we're not hearing this overall. Now, having said that, I mean, I, it's it's it. This will be catastrophic to the global economy if we stop having having lots of children. So, I'm. Uh, it, it's not that I've got any great answers to the uh, the dilemma that we face. I think for myself, the best thing that I'm going to try and do is again just be try and be nicer to the rest of nature. But that's. Uh, it's rather vacuous, isn't it? Philosophically, it's not, or rather, it's vacuous. Um, it's vacuous practically. This isn't really going to do anything. But I think I'd like people to think about this. Those that believe that they're really doing something positively for for, for the environment. Um, one of my neighbors, uh, not a close neighbor, so it's uh, I can out him in this way. But he's got a zero CO two or zero carbon license plate on his his beautiful Tesla. Um, I mean, there's a degree of naivety there that's. Uh, I, I think should be countered quite uh, quite forcefully. That was certainly one thing I try and do in this book. We're, we're not going to save ourselves. We're not going to save the biosphere by uh, putting solar panels on our, on our roofs or driving electric cars. I see these as funeral decorations for for the planet. Again, not very uplifting, well, but um, I hope people read the book. And um, I'm so. Well, what do what do you? I mean. There are some people that will read it just with an eye for curiosity and maybe get ideas from it. So that'd be a positive thing. But I mean, what ideas did you get? Or maybe if you had some people read advanced copies, did did people come back to you with uh, surprisingly good ideas or did you come up with any? Not good ideas. But one thing I write about in the book is 
uh, and as a fungal biologist, so not somebody that's ever studied animal behavior, is to actually look at the literature on animal intelligence, animal sensitivity, really, really amazing advances in the last few years, just showing that degrees of self-awareness among other animals and perhaps even among insects and just the extraordinary level of sensitivity that we find among flies that we're driven to to swat on a you know regular basis if they're crawling over our food or you know invading a invading a wine glass but there was this beautiful study published quite recently on fruit flies showing that if a fruit fly just one of its legs was amputated with fine scissors that this animal afterwards would show actually not would show this behavior for days even well for the rest of its life this all evidence of um of chronic pain it would avoid touching objects with that side of its its body it would evince uh, sort of a, a stronger escape response in uh, when it, when when placed on a hot plate i mean these these animals are clearly acting in a way that seems very very similar to um human behavior and if we're getting this in degree of sensitivity in fruit flies what does this mean about the rest of of the animals that we uh we punish in our agricultural practices and uh, through the pollution of the environment, the fact that there are still active whaling uh, stations in some parts of the world. That's, that's something actually that I've had quite a lot of feedback on people interested in, in this idea that they haven't thought about it in this way previously. So um, as a uh, fungal biologist though, I mean, what's your thoughts? Uh, how, how do um fungi relate to our existence and to the existence of animals? You know, maybe a few comments there. Yeah. So, I mean, I spent 30 years studying fungal reproduction in, in uh, looking at uh, spore movements around, among fungi and also the way that fungi grow and invade plant and animal tissues. And there's a, there's a tendency among popularizers of fungal biology to trumpet the ways in which fungi differ from other life forms that they're, they're weird and strange organisms. And indeed, there are astonishing ways in which fungi move, for example, brilliant mechanisms, or, uh, superb examples of evolutionary engineering that we find in the fungi that we don't see elsewhere in the natural world. But I think over time working on the fungi, what became very clear to me is that I was looking at distinctive solutions to biological challenges that are spread throughout nature. And I think probably that's really what I'm doing in this book, The Selfish Ape, is actually applying some of that thinking to humans, that there's this great tendency among specialists, those that study different groups of organisms, or perhaps are, are very interested in homo sapiens, to show them to, to celebrate their specialness, which is, I don't know, it's all well and good Perhaps, but it's more important, I think, to recognize ways in which, through their evolutionary history, organisms have solved the same basic set of problems. How to acquire nutrients, how to access energy from those, those nutrients, how to reproduce, how to grow, how to move. It's, um, so we can see this, as I say, throughout the natural world. And although I'm still very interested in the fungi, I mean, that there's... There's perhaps everything that we see a fungus doing, we see examples of this in, in human biology, human nature. Yeah, what's a, what's a really cool example, you think, of uh, you know, either getting nutrients or processing or moving? Like what's one that you can uh, draw on 
and talk about that that you just think is is really neat. Yeah, there's the one one mechanism of movement is the mechanism of spore discharge that we see in the mushroom forming fungi. So these are called basidiomycetes, and there's about sixteen thousand that have been described that actually form a, a large fruit body, something that can be seen with the naked eye. And all of these organisms use this same mechanism to propel their spores from the surface of the fruit body. So that might be the surface of gills. And what's interesting about this mechanism is that nothing else moves like this in nature. There's no, we don't see any analog of this anywhere else in the, the, um, in the living world, anywhere else in nature. And it's described as a surface tension catapult. And in, it involves the movement of a microscopic droplet of fluid over the spore surface. And this occurs very, very fast. I'm talking about movement on the, the scale of millionths of a second, microseconds. And this essentially kicks the spore off the surface that it's on, on which it's growing at tremendous speed or tremendous acceleration anyway. And we, again, we don't see this elsewhere in nature. And yet this must have evolved among the ancestors of all of these mushrooms. And it's worked so well that it's been maintained um, for tens of millions of years of evolutionary history, perhaps perhaps longer. So this mechanism was first described in the 19th century, but it's only with modern technology, high-speed video cameras, for example, that we can really begin to understand this mechanism. But there's still lots and lots of questions that are unanswered about the way that these mushroom-forming fungi do indeed move their spores. And uh, so anyway, I managed to invest many years of research on that particular mechanism. And that work continues. Other other mycologists, fungal biologists are still intrigued by this. So what does this tell you that there's a you know, similarity in the way creatures eat and move and absorb nutrients and do other basic functions? I mean, you, you know, that the similarity probably is a lot more present to you after doing the research for this book. Like, what are your thoughts there? What does that tell you about the nature of nature? Well, I suppose it tells me just how patently uninteresting animals and plants are, particularly compared with microorganisms. I mean, all plants do the same thing. There's a few variations on it, but all plants are photos. Most plants are photosynthetic. That's how they produce their their food using uh, using sunlight, then using the energy in in uh, sunlight to uh, incorporate the carbon atoms in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere uh, into sugars and other biological molecules. And then most animals work by consuming those materials. But if we look among the microorganisms, we see a far greater range of uh, ways of generating and acquiring nutrients. And this is where the real diversity exists in nature. So I've always been convinced if I think I might have mentioned the uh, the aliens that I'm convinced are going to be visiting us soon just to see what's happening down down here. I think they'd be very unlikely to actually abduct a, a farmer from a field in Kansas, as the uh, uh, tabloids famously <laughs> claimed the uh, weekly world news. I don't even know if that thing's still in print. Probably not. But I think they'd be much more likely to take soil samples and look at microorganisms. I mean, that's where the, the genetic variation is. That's where the metabolic and physiological variation exists. And for me, at least, that's where I find nature most most enthralling is at that microscopic level. And and still we one can claim that microbiology is still in its infancy is pushing it. But 
we uh, there's still so much to learn about the the diversity in the microbial world and the way that microorganisms actually work. Well, what do you think about the uh, the fact that people are essentially you know holobionts or metaorganisms? They have a a microbiome, a mycobiome, a virome. You know, I mean, we have virus right. DNA so that, that we've been that, that that's right. So that would, in fact, be the the the, the justification that the alien might use for for grabbing the odd farmer is really just the onboard microorganisms that are coming with all those 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 human cells. So yes, indeed, there's there's that tremendous diversity of organisms within the human gut, but also on the skin surface, on our hair follicles, all all over and within us. I mean, we're we're embedded in in nature. We're embedded in the microbial world i mean most biology is in the end microbiology if we look at it in terms of biomass numbers of cells diversity yeah i think that's a decent description of of earth it doesn't seem that like that to us because we don't these organisms are invisible until we use a microscope but yeah most biology is microbiology so now that you've uh written this book i don't know has that sparked your interest in writing another different one in a new direction or you know, again, how has it, uh, you've spoken about it a little bit, but how has it changed you in well, your think, work? Does it uh, change your research or what's next? Yeah, I think in, at least in terms of my writing, it's made me more interested in a, or interested in a broader range of topics about other, you know, getting beyond mycology. I describe myself now actually as a, as a recovering mycologist, having done this for so long and specialized in the study of the fungi. There is so much else out there that I find fascinating and so so indeed that's really what i'm looking at now it's it's a hopefully a productive late midlife crisis to become really interested in things like jellyfish and other organisms that i've really ignored for most of most of my adult life because of my obsession with the fungi so i recommend it there's probably entomologists out there that should should uh, think about branching out a bit and looking at other facets of the the natural world uh, so instead of being uh, you know so honed in on one thing, so focused, so pigeonholed. People need uh, to look at more variety around them in their research, for instance. Well, I think they have that. They have we have that choice as as investigators. I mean, there's not one path, but absolutely, we need to we need to specialize to really make progress in understanding the way that different scraps of nature actually work. I mean, it's absolutely essential. We have to be specialists in that way. But I I think to be interested in sort of a broader view of of biology, broader view of the rest of nature, I think is is very healthy. And then I suppose thinking about it too, another impetus for writing The Selfish Ape was finding that professional colleagues at meetings um, really don't seem to be that concerned about the collapse of the biosphere, which I suppose is a, there's probably some sort of psychiatric basis for this. It's a, it's a difficult thing to look at. But um, I think to some degree, it's unconscionable to keep studying fungal biology or fungal diversity, for example, when so much of it is actually disappearing in nature. I was struck years ago by by this through um, the, the, the great E.O. Wilson through his Encyclopedia of Life Project, now more than 10 years old, and the idea of documenting every living thing on earth, putting a name or a, or, or a tag on every single thing that we might regard as a species, which is quite futile in itself, perhaps, given that we, uh, we lack a good def- definition of a species for, for many groups of organisms. But again, I, I suppose the, 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 
poorest part for that project, uh, the poorest, um, well, one of the criticisms that I have of the Encyclopedia of Life project was just what the purpose of this was. Are we really just trying to describe things as they go extinct to create this great archive that then can be studied by, by whom? By any survivors in the future? Or again, my, my aliens that I seem to be obsessed with in this, this interview, they're going to come back and just look at the mess that we made and say, wow, look at all these, these beautiful marine organisms that used to live here and they're all gone now. Wow. But they're, at least they're documented here through this, this online encyclopedia. I think biologists about, need, um, need to look at this more carefully. What about uh, evolutionary biology and Darwinism and the, you know, the central dogma? Has that changed for you in studying this vast swath of nature? No, I, I, I don't think so. It's um, no, not in any, I mean, the, the Darwin's dangerous idea, it, uh, it, it, it covers, it covers a great deal of um, uh, natural processes. It's not everything, but um, yeah, neo-Darwinian view of the world is, is still extremely powerful. It shows us how we got here and why we, we got here. It's, it's, it has that much vigor still. Any change in theology or thinking like that, or no? Oh, any chance? That's that's a good that's a good question. I mean, I, I think I was born an atheist, so pr- probably not. Definitely no. not. Not probably not. Definitely not. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, excellent. So, what's the best way for people to uh, get the book? Is it uh, when is it? What is its release date? So or it's out it now. It's, now? it's available. Um, it's available on Amazon. And it uh, just came out in an Italian edition that's doing quite nicely. But, um, yeah, it's available on Amazon. Also in the United States, it's sold through um, University of Chicago Press. But the, the publisher is Reaction Books, and they're based in London. And is there an audible version? Um, that's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that question. There should be, shouldn't there? Yeah, well, there's, you know. Advice, there, there isn't uh, yet. I suspect there, there, there will be, but there is not yet. Yeah. Very good. So the selfish shape, Nicholas Piamani. Nick, uh, any last thoughts uh, before we wrap? No, I think we've um, we've uh, we've covered a great deal of territory here. Um, so hopefully, there's something of interest for the listeners. I know this has been sort of a, a broad ranging uh, discussion here, but um, oh, that's great. That's yeah. Okay. Thanks for your time. You've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 